Good day. I'm Martin Webb, and welcome to the Climate Report for Thursday, December 9th, 2021. Broadcasting and podcasting on KVMR-FM and at kvmr.org every second and fourth Thursday at 6.30 p.m. From powering the U.S. grid and the U.S. government with 100% renewable energy, to free tree giveaways in the U.K., to phone apps helping Europeans cut carbon emissions, here are today's climate news headlines. There is worry and concern in some people's minds about the U.S. electric grid stability and being 100% renewable-powered. New research from Stanford University professor Mark Jacobson seeks to remove any doubts about grid stability in a world powered entirely by renewable energy. The latest study models 100% wind, water, and solar-powered grids across the United States, finding no risk of blackouts in any region, and also broad benefits in cost reduction, job creation, and even land use. Targets and mandates to reach 100% renewable electricity over the coming decades are being introduced in regions the world over, as well as requirements promoting electrification in various segments such as in heating and transportation. But in many regions, there is still reluctance to move away from fossil fuels and fears that the intermittent nature of wind and solar generation is likely to cause problems to regional energy supplies. In the United States, for example, blackouts caused by extreme weather in both California and Texas over the past two years are still sometimes blamed on renewables, despite the analysis showing renewables were not any more vulnerable than fossil fuel infrastructure in either case. A new study from Mark Jacobson and colleagues at Stanford University seeks to analyze the United States grid stability based on projections for 2050 and 2051 energy demand forecasts in the middle of the century, and coupling that with a 100% renewable energy-powered grid. Jacobson has worked for more than a decade on modeling energy systems. The latest study was quite, quite granular and looked at meeting the United States' continuous electricity demand at 30-second intervals over a two-year period. They simulated six different U.S. states every 30 seconds for the years 2050 and 2051, with all of the transitions to electrification in place. Simulating six different U.S. states with very different climate and energy profiles, they modeled Alaska, Hawaii, California, Texas, New York, and Florida, as well as the currently interconnected regions of the country and the contiguous United States as a whole. The group modeled scenarios involving the massive scale-up of both offshore and onshore wind power, rooftop and ground-mounted solar, as well as some new geothermal plants, but notably, they used only already existing hydroelectric generation and didn't add any hydropower to the future. The study suggests that such a system would avoid blackouts or grid instabilities, thanks to a number of reasons. Partly that this system would reduce energy demand, and partly that as previous studies have shown, wind and solar actually tend to complement each other in terms of 
when they make power and when it's available at different times, both daily and seasonally. And finally, additional roles for energy storage and power demand response fill the gaps when there is little availability of either wind or solar. In addition to providing stability to the United States grid, the study found that this same 100% renewable energy-powered system would result in a reduction in energy costs across the United States and a reduction in required land use, from land currently occupied by fossil fuel operations to that needed for electricity infrastructure in a 100% renewable scenario. Now, this wouldn't be free, but the study says the cost for implementing such a transition is estimated at around $10 trillion. The study's authors estimate that based on just the energy cost savings alone, this would be paying for itself in as little as five years. It also estimates that this energy transition would create close to 5 million more permanent jobs than it would lose. And the cleaner air and fewer pollution-related illnesses would prevent more than 50,000 deaths in America every year and save around $700 billion every year in health costs. Said co-author Anna Katarina von Kroland, a PhD student in civil and environmental engineering at Stanford, quote, there is so much to be gained if we can gather the willpower to undertake the transition at a pace fitting the urgency of reaching a zero-carbon system. I suspect that these ideas, which might sound radical now, will soon become obvious in hindsight, end quote. So to recap, according to the latest research from Stanford, when modeling expected U.S. electricity needs across the two years of 2050 and 2051 in 30-minute increments, and then matched with 100% renewable electricity from wind, water, and solar, it would increase America's grid stability, provide lower-cost power, require less land, produce millions more net jobs versus losses, make cleaner air, provoke less deaths, and save trillions in health costs for those who don't die from bad air. While perhaps an undue amount of hope was placed on one man when Joe Biden was elected president, he's doing what he can around Congress via executive order to do some sort of gestures to address the climate crisis, as a new Biden order would make the U.S. government's operations carbon neutral by 2050. While hamstrung in Congress trying to make the entire country carbon neutral by 2050, and at least a 50% reduction this decade, President Joe Biden just yesterday signed an executive order to at least make the entire operations of the federal government carbon neutral by 2050. While aiming for a 65% reduction in emissions this decade, and an all-electric fleet of government cars and trucks in 2035. The White House said the order shows how the government will leverage its scale and procurement power to lead by example in tackling the crisis. The order said, quote, as the single largest landowner, energy consumer, and employer in the nation, the federal government can catalyze private sector investment and expand the economy and American industry by transforming how we build, buy, and manage electricity, vehicles, buildings, and other operations to be clean and sustainable. The order directs that 
Government buildings use 100% carbon-free electricity by 2030. That the U.S. government fleet of cars and trucks become all electric five years later in 2035. And that all federal contracts for any goods and services be completely carbon-free by 2050. Through the executive order, the government will transform its portfolio of 300,000 buildings, its fleet of 600,000 cars and trucks, and leverage its annual purchasing power of $650 billion in goods and services. Environmental groups generally hailed the order as a positive step, although some questioned the 30-year time frame to eventually achieve net-zero emissions. Bill Snape, a lawyer at the Center for Biological Diversity, said, quote, 2050 is an extremely weak goal for the federal government to free itself from climate heating pollution. This is like a teenager promising to clean their room in 30 years. We need action now, he said. The executive order will tackle about 15% of all U.S. emissions. Some of the most concerning tipping points in the climate crisis are when megafires turn forests from carbon catchers into carbon belchers. Wildfires from Siberia and Russia to the U.S. West spewed record amounts of carbon emissions just this year, and the year isn't over. Climate crisis fanned intense blazes emitted almost 2 billion tons of carbon globally in 2021, according to the European Union's monitoring service. That's equivalent to more than double Germany's entire annual CO2 emissions. Some of the worst-hit hotspots this year recorded their highest wildfire emissions ever for any January through November period since monitoring began in 2003. This included parts of Siberia's Yakutia region, Turkey, Tunisia, and the American West. That's blowing carbon at record levels out of forests instead of storing carbon. And it's all across the globe, in Asia, Mediterranean, the Middle East, Africa, and North America, from the Arctic to the equator, and everywhere in between just the last 12 months, from carbon stored on the planet to carbon blowing in the air. In North America alone, fires in Canada, California, and the U.S. Pacific Northwest emitted about 83 million tons of CO2 this summer, emitting huge smoke plumes that drifted all the way across the Atlantic to reach Europe. California's Dixie Fire, which ravaged nearly a million acres, was the largest recorded fire in the state's history. Lucas Chancel is co-director of the World Inequality Lab. The author of Unsustainable Inequalities, Social Justice, and the Environment, and is an affiliate professor at Sciences Po. He wrote a very interesting essay that we'd like to share some excerpts of. It's entitled, The Richest 10% Produce Half of Greenhouse Gas Emissions. They Should Pay to Fix the Climate. He says, let's face it, our chances of staying under a 2 degree Celsius increase in global temperature are not looking good. If we continue, business as usual, the world is on track to heat up by 3 degrees Celsius, at least by the end of this century. At current global emissions rates, the carbon budget that we have left, if we are to stay under 1.5 degrees, will be depleted in six years. 
The paradox is that globally, popular support for climate action has never been so strong. According to a recent United Nations poll, the vast majority of people around the world sees climate change as a global emergency. So what have we got wrong so far? There is a fundamental problem in contemporary discussion of climate policy. It rarely acknowledges inequality. Let's first look at the facts. 10% of the world's population are responsible for about half of all greenhouse gas emissions. While the bottom half of the world contributes just 12% of all emissions. And this is not simply a rich countries versus poor countries divide. There are huge emitters in poor countries. And there are low emitters in rich countries. Consider the U.S., for instance. Every year, the poorest 50% of the U.S. population emit, personally, about 10 tons of CO2 per person. That's the poorest half of the U.S. population on an annual basis, on average, emit 10 tons of CO2 per person. While the richest 10% in America emit 75 tons per person. That is a gap of more than 7 to 1. Similarly, in Europe, the poorest half emits about 5 tons per person, while the richest 10% emit about 30 tons, a gap of 6 to 1. You can view this data on the World Inequality Database. Where do these large inequalities come from? The rich emit more carbon through the goods and services they buy, as well as from the investments they make. Low-income groups emit carbon when they use their cars or heat their homes, but their indirect emissions, that is, the emissions from the stuff they buy and the investments they would make, are significantly lower than those of the rich. Countries have announced plans to cut their emissions significantly by 2030. And most have established plans to reach net zero somewhere around 2050. Let's focus on the first milestone, the 2030 emission reduction target. According to my recent study, as expressed in per capita terms, the poorest half of the population in the U.S. and most European countries have already reached or almost reached this target. That is not the case at all all for the middle classes and the wealthy who are well above, that is to say, behind the target. And one of the most interesting things that I wanted to mention that's easy to zip right through in this little piece that I shared some excerpts from is compare the poor and the wealthy in the U.S. to Europe. The poorest half of the U.S. population emit 10 tons of CO2 per person while the poorest half in Europe emit five tons per person. So when you just compare the poorest half, Europe versus the U.S., our poorest half still uses double what the poorest half do in Europe. As a reminder, we are living on the same planet, and somehow their poor are able to use half what our poor are using. And then when you compare the top 10% Europe to the U.S., in Europe, the richest 10% emit 30 tons per person. 
In the U.S., the same planet, the richest 10%, 75 tons per person. Two and a half times as much as Europe. Even our poorest create double the amount of emissions of the poorest in Europe. What do they know that we don't? Well, among the brilliant, bold, and creative and quick actions that are being taken in Europe is happening in Wales. A free tree for every Welsh household is going to be given as part of their country's climate initiative. A tree planting project aims to directly involve everyone in the country in the fight against the climate crisis. Over the next year or so, every household in Wales is to be offered a free tree to plant as part of a Welsh government call to arms in the fight against the climate emergency. Lee Waters, the Deputy Minister for Climate Change in Wales, said that the initiative was practical, a good way of getting more trees in the ground. But the aim was also to engage people and fire their imaginations by directly involving them in the battle against the climate crisis. The first trees will be available in March from one of five different regional community tree hubs. A further 20 hubs are to be set up across Wales by October of next year to get trees to everyone in time for next winter's planting season. There are more than 1 million households in Wales, so the exercise is a challenging one. In June, the Welsh government held what it called a deep dive exercise into trees and timber and concluded a steep change was needed to create enough woodland to tackle the climate emergency. The Welsh government judges that it needs to plant about 43,000 hectares of new woodland this decade and 180,000 hectares by 2050 to meet climate crisis targets. Well, to put that in perspective, again, tens of thousands of hectares this decade, hundreds of thousands of hectares by 2050. Last year in 2020, just 290 hectares of woodland was planted in Wales, and annual woodland creation has never exceeded 2,000 hectares since 1975. Well, the government argues that planting more trees is not only essential to help avoid catastrophic climate change, but will provide a wide range of other benefits, including addressing the nature emergency, mitigating flooding and air quality issues, increasing well-being, and creating green jobs. It accepts that the vast majority of new woodland will not be planted by the Welsh government, but by the communities, farmers, and other landowners across Wales. Deputy Minister for Climate Change Waters said, quote, The deep dive made it clear that everyone will have a part to play. People who live in flats or do not have room to plant a tree can opt to have a tree planted on their behalf. We understand that not all households will be able to plant a tree themselves, but will still be keen to get involved. Back here in California, there is a push to raise awareness about the heat waves Here's a few sentences from a piece that I nicked out of Australian version of The Guardian. It says, California will name and categorize heat waves should Australia follow suit. Heat waves kill more people in Australia than all other natural disasters combined, and some experts believe naming them might help reduce deaths. California may become the latest jurisdiction to set up a system that would categorize and name heat waves like cyclones or hurricanes raising questions about whether Australia should adopt a similar system to reduce heat-related deaths. Following the recent example of Greece, 
and the city of Seville in Spain, authorities in California will introduce a bill in January to develop the ranking and naming system. The proposed system works by naming heat waves and categorizing them similar to hurricanes. But instead of being coded by temperatures, they will be ranked according to their risk to human health and specifically the risk of death. For example, a Category 1 heat wave might occur when the daily mortality rate was expected to climb by 10% versus normal day, with Category 2 and 3 heat waves rising further. For example, when a Category 3 heat wave would be declared, then it may lead to the opening of swimming pools and air-conditioned shelters to the public, the activation of check-in services for the elderly, or a ban on utility companies cutting off power for the period of the heat wave to ensure access to air conditioning. Just like naming hurricanes raises the awareness and concern versus, hey, some rain and wind is coming, the idea is that naming California's heat waves will also attach an appropriate level of concern and attention. On a federal level, the U.S. is lagging in electric vehicle sales despite the Biden administration's push. The White House has set a goal for electric vehicles to make up half of all new car sales by the end of this decade in order to slash planet heating emissions and help avert disastrous climate change. But a new report has found that electric cars currently only make up about 4% of American sales in 2021. Compared to China that they have 9% EV sales, and in Europe, 14% of new car sales are EVs. So again, this year so far, American sales of EVs is 4% of new cars. China is more than double that. Europe is more than triple that. This is all in line with a distinct recent trend. While electric vehicles are on the rise in the U.S., with our fleet climbing at an annual rate of 28%, the other major car markets have pulled significantly ahead. The EV fleet grew at 50% a year in China over the last five years, while Europe has seen a 40% year-on-year increase over the last few years. In the U.S., a lack of federal government support for electric vehicles, cheap gasoline prices, fears and paranoia about driving EVs, and a paucity of charging infrastructure is holding back progress, according to a report. To help address that, power companies are now committing to building a nationwide EV charging network. That's right, the oil companies don't want to see cars stop using their fuel, but the electric utility companies see an opportunity to sell more of their products. They announced a new coalition yesterday. Over 50 utilities across the U.S. have come together to speed up the build-out of EV charging stations along the nation's highways. It's a brand new National Electric Highway Coalition announced yesterday by the Edison Electric Institute, which is merely an association of large investor-owned power companies. Together, the companies aim to fill charging infrastructure gaps along major travel corridors in the U.S. Each utility that's a member of this new coalition must commit in good faith to create an EV fast-charging network across its service territory using any approach they see fit by the end of 2023. The EEI estimates that the U.S. will need more than 100,000 fast charging stations for the 22 million EVs expected to be on the roads by 2030. 
For now, the roughly 2 million EVs registered in the U.S. can juice up at public charging stations of various speeds throughout the country, but only around 5,600 of those, according to the Department of Energy, are fast charging stations that can get an EV battery to 80% charge in under an hour. Easier access to fast charging stations in particular could help drive greater EV adoption among wary customers. In our last climate report news item, a carbon-cutting app for phones aims to help Londoners ease into a net-zero future, and it could spread around the globe. London is planning to deploy a version of a Finnish online tool, meaning made in Finland, that helps people monitor their carbon footprint. For those who want to be part of a zero-carbon future but find the prospect of giving up flying, ditching the car, and turning vegan daunting, help may be at hand. A Finnish-made online tool that promises to give users the key to their own sustainable good life by taking control of their carbon footprint is set to be launched in the UK. The London City Council is looking at developing a version of the tool specific to London. This app aims to be helpful rather than hectoring, letting people create their own tailor-made path to reducing their CO2 output rather than giving out blanket prescriptions such as stopping flying or eating meat. Its developers say users in Finland, who answer the tool's 20-odd questions and commit to change, commonly reduce their carbon footprint by 30% in 12 months through simple steps such as buying secondhand clothes, cycling more, and eating locally produced food. Philip Glanville, the mayor of Hackney and chair of the London City Council Transport and Environment Committee, said the tool could help show citizens that even small tweaks to their daily lives will contribute to tackling the climate crisis. He said the vast majority of our residents are motivated to help prevent climate change. Our recent polling suggests 87% feel this way. But Londoners can only make the choices they are given. Finland has agreed to reduce its CO2 emissions by 2030, compared with 1990 levels. According to calculations by Citra, the Finnish innovation fund that developed the tool, if every household in Finland merely had two people reducing their carbon footprint by 20%, that individual reduction alone would result in meeting 75% of Finland's national reduction requirements. Said Marcus Terho from Citra, there's a misconception that it doesn't really matter what you do as an individual, how you eat, how you live, how you move, or what type of products and services that you buy. Studies show that individual action has a significant potential to lower CO2 impact on a global level. Terho said achieving a carbon footprint reduction of as much as 20% is easy to do, anyone can do it, and it's very fast. The tool which launched in Finland in 2018, has gone viral in the Nordic nation of 5.5 million people, with 1.2 million tests already taken in the app. While only about a fourth of the Finnish population are motivated enough by climate fears to change the way they live, the majority think other things are beneficial to change the way they live, such as well-being, health, saving money and time, and fun. Said Turho, the beauty of this app is that everyone can find their own way to live a good life that is sustainable. You can find your own unique combination of actions that create meaningful reduction. 
Terho said another 17 countries were looking to adapt the approach, and the organization estimated that this app has the potential to take as much as a gigaton of carbon out of the atmosphere by the end of the decade. Terho stressed that engaging citizens was a part of the solution, saying, quote, activating citizens on a large scale will bring CO2 reductions and push governments, cities, municipalities, and companies to move quicker. Mitigating climate change is such a huge global societal challenge that everyone's contribution is needed, end quote. That's all for today's climate report. Broadcasting and podcasting here on KVMR-FM and at kvmr.org every second and fourth Thursday at 6.30 p.m. I'm Martin Webb. For daily news headlines in between broadcasts, there's the Climate Report social media page, and I host the Balance Beam Facebook Live podcast for personal climate action chats. For questions or comments, feel free to email climatereport at kvmr.org.